Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Chuck Cantwell. Chuck uh, is well known for his involvement in the world of racing. But in particular, we're going to talk a little bit about his his time at Carroll Shelby, or I should say maybe Shelby American, and being the project manager of the GT350 from, uh, and starting in 1965. When when Mustang came out with in 1964 with the, with the uh, well when, when it came out, a lot of people kind of thought of it more or less as a you know a small family secretary's ladies' car as such. And of course, uh, you know, Lehigh Coco wanted to turn it into something of a race car. What was your thoughts when you were first brought on to look at this and say, "Well, we got to make this a GT350," and you're going to, we got, you know, obviously you knew what what assets it was going to need to become a race car. What were your initial thoughts when you saw the car? Yeah, well, the, the first I hear, heard about it was when Sam Smith, who was a friend of mine that went to work for Ray Geddes and and Ford Special Vehicles called me and wanted to tell me about the program and ask if I was going might be interested. And Sam sort of laid laid out what they wanted to do with the with the car to make it it wasn't wasn't a GT three fifty even then. It was just a, a Shelby Mustang, I guess was how it was referenced at that time. That was in the summer of sixty four somewhere. So so, you know, the idea sounded sounded good and, and he explained that they'd done some rallying with those cars and had some special suspension modifications and, and various things like that that had been used. And, and that Miles and I don't know whether Miles and Remington had or Miles drove the, the couple of rally cars they had left over from uh, the spring of 64. And then brought them back to Ford, and Ford shipped them out to Shelby to for miles to try them out on the on the track and and uh, see what he thought about the uh, you know the modifications. That may or may not have been done when I first talked to Sam, but then basically that was either going to happen or had happened and was approved. And so it, it's just it sounded like a good program to me and doable and pretty well had a plan for where it was going and after that then i went to out to shelby's and talked to peyton kramer and carol shelby and and uh came back to to detroit and and received an offer from them to start later in the fall when they got everything together that they needed to have like they the fastback wasn't even out until september and that was the car that we were going to use for the shelby mustang so it, it was. It sounded like a good idea. I was curious. Obviously, you know, uh, the word when you say Carroll Shelby, Carroll, the word Carroll Shelby, of course, connotates speed, innovative, taking you know, taking an AC Cobra, turning it into a car that is right now, is, of course, you know, it's still still being manufactured today by uh, you know other other uh, third party companies and such. But with working with Carroll Shelby, if you don't mind a little bit, you know, how much hands-on was he, or did he let the team, 
you, Ken Miles, Phil Remington, kind of do your thing and just show him the results and go from there? Or was it that he kind of, you know, kept a kept a hand in things? Or I'm just kind of curious how that relationship worked because, you know, different ways of doing things. Of course, I'm just kind of curious how Mr. Shelby handled working with, especially the development of a new car that they have never touched before, the GT350. Well, he, 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 of course, didn't want to really didn't really want to do that. I Coco did a little arm twisting and and uh, you know promised to support the program. So he went ahead. The plans went ahead to figure out how to how to make this car. And so so Shelby was when I didn't come to Shelby till I guess October of '64. And there wasn't any point in coming earlier because there weren't parts and cars or anything to work on. We got our first three cars in the very early in November to, to start working on as prototypes or at least the first models of, of the that we were that the car would be. You know, when I went out there, I was, I was new person in the program, and and actually. They hired three three people to a production manager, which was Jack Corey, and he was hired from Chevrolet. And I was working at GM Styling at the time, and hired me as a project engineer and, and a guy named Bruce Jr. as the uh, facilities person that would, would take care of those things. And so it all sort of started about early October. And I, though I spent, you know, some time at, at Ford getting educated as to what we were going to do. And we started, but Carol, when we'd have meetings, we'd have dinner, dinner meetings with when Ford guys would come out LA and, and Carol and maybe Peyton and uh, myself and the, the people involved from uh, special vehicles, depending on what we were talking about. But Shelby was was always involved, but he was more of a more of a hands-off person. He had teams of people doing jobs more than say having one person. Of course, you need a team when you're doing the whole whole job, but uh, he sort of organized things that way. You know, Remington was always involved as uh, the, the chief engineer, and, and Pete Brock did the design stuff, and the rest of us worked on our our part of the getting the program together. And we had a, a Ford, Ford purchasing person, Jerry Nuznoff, who had a lot of experience in the West Coast and, and getting you know, buying parts for different Ford elements that were doing competition stuff or different or special projects. So it was, it was a, and Shelby, he, he didn't interfere much. I mean, he, if, if he had an opinion about something, it was transmitted through a meeting or a, or a, or a personal conversation or, or something about what he wanted to to do, and he would check up on things, but he wasn't one that meddled uh, a lot and uh, concerned himself with the fine fine details. He, he let his people do their work. Well, that makes sense because I think people have always said, or I should say that he's always been quoted to say that uh, to be successful, you surround yourself with really good people that know what they're doing, and it makes you look smarter because you've got good people doing their job. And so... I would think to make that dynamic work, you probably would say, okay, I got to trust the team that they're going to do things. But at the same time, I'm sure you felt if you had a question or something came up, you were probably going to ask other members of your team 
or Carol himself, hey, what do you think about this? Or we're having a little issue with that. Otherwise, it's it's probably the kind of work atmosphere most people would like to have is, well, you know, you're qualified to do the job, do the job. And if you've got questions, the team is here to support, but otherwise, do the job. And so uh, it makes it sound like that would be a pretty pretty nice working atmosphere, especially considering then you're, you're, you're kind of creating a new Mustang. Because it's obviously something that's, you know, it was going to be different, high performance, track ready. And which leads me to, of course, um, as you know, in uh, April of this year at our opening of the new uh, wing of the museum and National Mustang Day itself, we're going to have 003 here. Yes, I, I heard that. Uh, that. That's good. Yeah, well, I'm surprised you probably, you may have heard it from a couple of people. You know, there seems to be, we're saying we're. I'm starting to find just how much more excitement people are excited to see having you and the car together. The owner is he did sign up to come to the event, so I, I can't confirm he's going to be here, but he did register. And uh, I I believe you know Charles Turner, and yeah. Char, Charles of course did the work on the restoration, so he's going to be here. So it's going to be quite a little reunion to have you and the car and the team, those guys here. But I was hoping you'd just chat a little bit about the early days of 001, 002, and 003, because uh, that's, I, 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 would, I, I don't know if this is the right term, and if I'm saying this wrong, I apologize. That kind of seems like that's a little bit of the holy grail of, must, of uh, Shelby Mustangs, the 65s anyway. And so I was hoping you'd just chat a little bit about each of those, how the, how, well, just tell us about the cars. The first cars we got were three cars beginning in November, very early in November. And there were two two race car configurations and one street car. The street car was, the, the numbers got crisscrossed a little bit. We started working on the street car right away and on the race car two minutes later, I guess. <laughs> the, the street car sort of was, was first, but the race car was Right at the same time, the race car was built in the in the hallway between two sections of the race shop, in the, or the Princeton Street building. The um, 003 car, the street car, was being built uh, diagonally across an open lot where the uh, Carter Street building was. Uh, Princeton and Carter intersected, and one was around the corner from the other. And they did some Cobra builds over in the you know, production Cobra stuff over in the Carter Street building. So they carved out a section there to work on Mustangs, and and uh, so that first car started. We started getting parts together and and so forth, and the same as the race car, because a lot of the basic parts were the were the same, and they were special build cars from San Jose, which we were still trying to refine the details of the special builds by the end of end of the year end of the month probably in november we had modified some of the specs on the on the cars the way they were built in san jose and sent to us the cars that were coming to shelby had to had to run off the assembly line so we had a lot of a lot of parts on those cars that were not usable, though we were going to change, like the intake manifolds and the carburetors and, and that kind of stuff we put on at Shelby. So we took the, the new ones off and set them in the corner and some other things, the manifolds and the engine pans and that kind of stuff. Engine pans, they used some a few of them to make race pans for the Cobras and Rocker covers the same way. But uh, 
a lot of that stuff just got piled up until finally some airport administrator who was noticing this pile of car parts out behind the bunker that lined the edge of our uh, property released with the two hangers at LAX. And uh, and ended up selling them off as, as a scrap, I guess, to, to somebody. And actually, one of the employees bought them and stored them and sold the part people that needed it. But uh, the, the streetcar came along good, and it was built pretty quickly because we wanted to have something to display to the public and the press and, and uh, show it off a little bit. So it, it got a lot, of, a lot of attention that way and was taken out on photo shoots and you know, drives for, for the press and stuff like that. The race car I worked on, you know, probably didn't get finished up till the end of the year or a little bit after. And our goal with the street cars, and we, we got some more cars and second batch of cars came maybe in, in end of November or maybe December even. And those cars were, they started, were started to be built at the Venice Carter Street building, and they they were assembled on jack stands. And the, my goal was to try to get a dozen cars done by the end of the year. I was taking the last the month between Christmas and or the week between Christmas and New Year's. I was taken off to go back to Michigan, get married, and then drive back out to L.A. So by the time when I came back was New Year's New Year's Day or the day after, whenever we started work for the new year. It was, um, we, we we had 12 or 14 cars mostly assembled, but there were still a few parts missing, and then it took another week or so before we got those completely assembled, and, and meanwhile, we're working on more there, on, and they were built on jack stands, whereas when we moved to the airport, which didn't happen totally until around March, then, then we had a a pit and an assembly line in trolleys to throw the put the cars on and run down the assembly line and that made things go a little faster. I gotta ask as a side note, you mentioned that you went home uh just before Christmas to get married and you and your bride then moved uh well, would have had to have moved from Detroit to LA. And being that I'm from California and I just spent the first week of February I was in Detroit what did your wife think about the new weather format? Did you did you guys enjoy LA? <laughs> well, <laughs> I did enjoy that part certainly, and, and well, we didn't we didn't know that was a big adventure for us. Uh, oh sure, getting married that is number one, and, and number two, a moving to LA, and and uh, I, I had a I, when I went out there at first, I stayed in the hotel for about three or four. Three weeks, I guess maybe. Uh, the bean counters all wanted me to wanted me to get out of there, and, and so I found a little apartment that didn't have any heat. It got pretty cool in the evenings in the winter in in uh, L.A. But when when we came back from Michigan, I had uh, rented a duplex uh, near near the plant, and and uh, we moved in there with little or no furniture. We had a ironing board for a table and a uh, the bookcase for a dresser, <laughs> and I, I had gone out and bought a bed. So <laughs> I had a place to sleep that was okay. But, but it took us a while with, with all the blue laws and stuff that they had at that time. I mean, we worked 
long hours and six days a week. And so Joanne and I didn't have much time to, to do a lot of shopping for furniture we needed and stuff like that. So eventually in a couple months, we got enough stuff to live com- comfortably. And uh, Well, one of the things is funny you mentioned about uh, a heater in the apartment. I don't know if you may have noticed this, but there are a lot, a lot of places in Southern California they don't even have air conditioners either, because it's just yeah. so mild. <laughs> so, so you you could run into problems because it's not like it's not working. We they didn't the apartments. I mean, hotels have them, of course, but apartments, even homes. I live in San Diego, and our home did not have air conditioner. And any time, yeah. <laughs> any time it got to around you know ninety to hundred degrees, which it rarely does, but it does. Uh, my kids loved it because they knew we were going to go to a hotel and they could go swimming in the pool. And so it was like you know, what's a, oops, hundred degrees? We're going to a hotel. So no, it, but it is a it is a different lifestyle as far as the weather is concerned. So, but going back to the GT three fifty, a couple of questions I was always kind of curious myself, and, and this may already be documented, and I just don't know it, but. How did Wimbledon white with blue stripes? Uh, did it come from the factory that way, or did it something that's what, uh, that your your team said? This is the color. This is the design we wanted, or is that something that uh, Peter Brock came up with? How how did you come up with that color combination? Yeah, well, uh, that was Peter's uh, design, and he had a. It was very finicky about the, the stripes tapered to give you a visual effects of not tapering <laughs> but but they uh so he had the specifications and the and the color blue we had a particular guardsman blue for the stripes and and then we had to make the rocker stripes those were initially painted on the on the car and then we got vinyl adhesive stripes for the car and the numbers dt350 were painted on and then it was all a mask stripe and 350 identification that was could be put on in one piece and in the, in the, the rocker stuff. But the design and the type and all that stuff that you know the designers like to have control of they, that was Peter's deal. He he then he had a guy named Skeet Kerr who worked with him and did a lot of the detail work for the for the cars but the, the basic layout with the stripes were sort of an identifying design for the car well, but then I mean, we, we didn't do them at the factory we did them we painted cars at, at the shop at the airport and it was sort of a difficult job to mask and paint those stripes and it took a took a while so we sold a lot of cars with no stripes. In fact, there's some pictures that show the the parking the parking area for the cars out outside the hangars at the LA plant that uh, didn't have stripes. I mean, the whole field of hundred cars in, in the field, and it was one one car had stripes out of all that. So dealers painted a lot. In the end, the dealers painted a lot of the stripes on the cars. Oh. Interesting. I didn't realize it because, of course, the, the the blue stripes on the Wimbledon white car has become such an iconic feature. That's almost one of the things when you see that, your first thought is that car must be a Shelby. And then you've got to, you know, you have to look at it a little further sometimes to confirm that or not. But that's just such an iconic asset that you see on a, on a especially an early edition Mustang. 
that uh, you know those those blue stripes on a white car. That's just you know that's a Shelby as such. The other question I had a couple more quick questions for you. One is where did the name GT three fifty come from? Because I've I've heard a story. And it's pr probably true, but I want to confirm because you you may have been there. But how did they come up with the name GT350? Well, I wasn't there personally, but, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but supposedly Shelby and, and uh, Remington were together, just just them talking about what are we going to call this thing, and and uh, and somebody undoubtedly Shelby had some idea about GT something or other. So and supposedly also Shelby asked Phil Remington, uh, how far is it between the, the Princeton Street plant and the you know diagonally across an open field to the Carter Street building and and, and why he asked that I don't know but that's that's what the story goes and and uh, and Phil said oh it's about 350 feet and so Shelby said well that's that's good it's uh, we'll call it the GT 350. And he said, if the car is worth what it's supposed to be, the name won't make any difference anyway, or something to that effect. So, mm -hmm. Austin Craig, who was back, he's working at the Las Vegas uh, Shelby American plant with doing a lot of PR stuff and things like that now. But he knew Shelby from from real early in in the program, and, and he's he says that Shelby told him. One time, that's how it happened, and uh, so that's a kind of first, second-hand confirmation, at least of uh, of the story. But that uh, that uh, there's, there's no no known better story for for that. But once it, once you know once it was that, then then that was the name of it, and we went on from there. Well, that, that's kind of, like I said. That, that's what I had heard, but I thought you know, some you don't always have a chance to ask somebody who was there, and not necessarily in that in that conversation, the initial conversation, but you were certainly there at the beginning of when we had you know you got to call it something. So I was just kind of curious if you kind of confirm confirm that a little bit because uh, I was just curious. That that's it's kind of I always thought it was funny. It's like how do they know it was three hundred fifty feet by just sitting and looking at it? I said that's just you know. It's such a, I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's a little bit more, it's a length of a football field, including the end zones. And so I guess that could be your your parameter of looking and say, well, you know, that's about 350 feet. So I was just curious how uh, somebody could kind of look at that and, and judge 350 feet. So that was a pretty cool part of the story. I did also want to ask you, doing some research, I understand you did a book about the GT350. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, the book came about, uh, uh, I guess, through my co-author, Greg, Greg Colossa. He had contacted David Bull from David Bull Publishing on the West, on the, in Phoenix, I guess. I had met David a couple, well, a few years before that at, in Detroit, uh, some kind of a SAE thing. He had been told by a friend of mine in New Hampshire who was actively involved and had a, some really good Shelby American cars. And he told David, so when you go to the show, look up Chuck. So he did. So we, we'd become good friends for, for a long time and had talked back and forth and been at different shows and things together doing whatever we were doing. And um, anyway, Greg Colossa, who had written some books on small groups of GT350, cars and, and 
stuff like that. Had talked to David and and Greg was a good friend also through the, the Shelby Club stuff. And so I don't know who talked to who first, but it was so. I think Greg talked to David and and and. David and I talked, and we we all talked, and and decided that that we'd do a book. Now there was never any contracts or anything drawn up for to start a start a book. None of that stuff. So it was strictly strictly a hand handshake handshake deal. And Greg uh, and I started passing information back and forth, some recordings and some some emails and all kinds of stuff. And so we worked worked uh, worked really really good. We were two perfect people to to do the do the book. And and it was our concern was with the fact that a number of books had been written, and a lot of them were inaccurate and we were trying Greg being a very detailed historian uh, worked very well together and we were trying to get as much truth out <laughs> as as we could about regarding some of the details that were talked about in other books and uh, articles and stuff that was incorrect so our objective was to make it very factual and to, and to tell the story of the car so that's that's what we set out to do, and I think we did it very successfully. What I, sh- what I should mention then for our listeners is that the name of the book is, Sh- is Shelby Mustang GT350, My Years Designing, Testing, and Racing Carol's Legendary Mustang. Uh, it came out in 2017, and Chuck, do you know if the book is still in print or still available from the publisher? Uh, there, I've got some available. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk off the air about all that. Because uh, I definitely think having the book here on hand would be would be uh, absolutely awesome, especially with with the, the the team that's here with you and the car. It would be a really neat piece to have. So, well, what I wanted to then ask you is a little bit. Um, one thing we like to ask our guests. Uh, obviously, your your automotive uh, resume extends into Trans Am. Uh, Trans Trans. It also goes to, if I remember correctly, to Mark Donahue's use Porsche team. But um, what um, what was your what did you when when the GT three fifty came out did you drive one as a as a reg, as a car for yourself to just to drive and get used to or you know what what was your first Mustang? <laughs> well, I I drove drove a lot of stuff on us in Detroit and and uh, won some divisional championships and stuff oh. like that and and MGs and and smaller cars and I. So I drove some other cars in different different races and other different types of cars. But I then when I went to when I went to Shelby at first I didn't I didn't even go to the first race of the GT three fifty. That was uh, Miles went down there with the car and took two or three Cobra mechanics and and they they did the thing in the weekend. But and then the next couple races, I guess they did this must have done the same thing with uh with Titus. He ran at Pomona and then ran at uh, Tucson and then ran at Riverside and the the, the way they had the, the race car set up, there was just the one one car that we raced in, in the divisionals out in the West Coast. But uh, the, the first car Titus ran up to, when they got to Riverside, they they found that the maintenance hadn't been very good in the car. The, the way the the car was sort of given to initially to high performance motors, which was Lou Spencer and Carol Shelby's uh, retail store, I guess, and they, they didn't really have any race mechanics. Lou didn't have any there where he was, and 
and they did a minimum of maintenance. Well, you, you can run a couple of races without doing much maintenance because they're only 40-mile races or 35 miles or something like that. You know, they're, they're short races, and you aren't going to burn the car up real quick. But after three or four races, you know, stuff starts to fall off and so forth. So that's what happened at Riverside, and we had a very poor showing. So we got together and tried to figure out a system that Al was all was uh, concerned about it. And so what he, he decided and everybody agreed that, that we would do the maintenance on the car at the Shelby shop with the with my Shelby crew, build build crew, and uh, which were three guys, and it was you know more than enough to build the cars and the race cars and maintain that car. And so then it would be some mechanic from High Performance Motors would trail it out on an open trailer to wherever the races were, and Lou and I would fly to the races and take care of overseeing the operation. So that then we. We sort of solved that problem of having proper maintenance, and that's what how it was done out there that whole the rest of the year. And we won the divisionals out there. Now I got after the first tests, even they did. I'm trying to think. I think at Riverside, I wasn't. I wasn't even at that. But then when we started, we did the rest of our testing pretty much at, with Miles and Bondrat driving. Then the Mustang guys started getting involved in the in the car as they should have been. And so I was out uh, out for those tests. And Miles, and I'd ride with Miles a few times, you know, on the track at Willow Springs. So sometime or another, I drove a couple of times. I'm not sure even how that went. There was so much going on that, that it was just hard to remember those little details. I guess overall, you probably know the must GT350 inside and out. You uh, you knew them probably a little bit more personally than most folks because of having to be able to test them and, you know, check them all out and such. And so, did Ken Miles, you mentioned a little bit that he did some racing with it. And, of course, and, and rightfully so, he got a lot of uh, attention because, because of the recent movie. So I was just curious, did he enjoy the Shelby Mustangs? Yeah, well, Ken would test the, you know, and did some of the early testing on the first car. And then he took it to, uh, you know, down to... Green Valley and won the races he was in that weekend, and that was uh, then everybody in the shop sort of sort of re- had some respect for the Mustang crew and what they were doing. Oh, there you <laughs> but, go. Before it was, you know, they were working on on Cobras and some special cars and then the GT40 stuff. So they they were in the high roller end of things, and <laughs> so they sort of looked down their nose a little bit at the Mustang guys. And, but, but as soon as, soon as Ken won that race, <laughs> as soon as Ken won that race, then everybody was all right. So, well, there you go. Nothing like a checker flag that'll uh, kind of make uh, change people's minds a little bit. But uh, with that, I, I, I we're running out of time. So Chuck, I, I probably need to to uh, thank you for coming on, spending some time okay. with us. I loved hearing these stories, and I know our listeners will also. And even more excited to have you come down. Like I said, uh, on the on April. But we're extremely looking forward to having you come down and spend some time with us. I know there's some some uh, Shelby folks that are coming by, and they're excited. Probably people you've known or met over the years, but uh, we're looking forward to having a really good time. But uh, I wanted to really thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to being down there and meeting all the good Mustang people that I haven't met yet. And it's uh, It'll be a good time. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.